Yeah, oh, uh, wasn't this, wasn't this New, uh, New Year's? It was last New Year's, wasn't it, Taylor? You got saved, wasn't it? It was Bible study? Yeah, that's what it was, yeah. And I'll tell you what, Mom and Dad are here today. Good to have them here. And uh, they didn't come to hear you sing. They come to hear me preach. I just want you to know that. <coughs> nah, I'll tell you what, man. You got a great kid there, I'll tell you. He is one in a million. And I love him to death, I'll tell you. He's, he's one of those kind of kids that, you know, and we have a bunch of them here that just, when they get saved, brother, they never look back. And he's done everything and grown faster. And he just, he said, yeah, Mom, give me a kiss, Mom. It's okay. Give me a kiss. <laughs> But uh, he's a great kid, and I love him. Now, <clears throat> don't open, don't turn the book of Proverbs today. I know you're all, I got a little something different for you today, something special. Uh, <clears throat> this, is a, uh, this is what they call in the, in the world an addendum. And uh, that's, uh, that's when they start to take your appendix out, and then they change their mind. <laughs> but... With, with where we're at in Proverbs, especially chapter 30, with especially last week. You know, last week we entered in and started talking about the generation in Matthew chapter 24 based on uh, the verses where we were at. And we, you know, we talked about it, uh, the key generation actually for the whole world and for everything that's going on. I cannot <coughs> emphasize to you <coughs> how the world changed at that point in time. And the generation now started in 1948 with the nation of Israel becoming a nation, and it runs up through where we're at today and right up to the rapture of the church and then brings us into uh, the tribulation period in Matthew chapter 24. If you remember, there were two questions that they asked the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Olives right where the second coming is going to take place. They both had to do with the Lord coming back. So I thought I'd take this week... And I want to give you all the information I can on this generation and how it came into being. I think <clears throat> for you not to know this would be a great injustice and a great uh, loss in your ability to be able to uh, put everything together. You know, I, I can't emphasize, uh, and, I, and I never will <clears throat> as long as I can preach, I cannot em emphasize enough the importance of understanding the hand of God in all things. Obviously in your own personal life, in your family, <clears throat> but certainly, especially in history. I I've said it many times, you know, we've been talking about a balance, <clears throat> and a balance of time <clears throat> is past, present, and future. That forms our balance. And I've said it many times, if you don't understand what God has done in history, then you have absolutely no clue where He's going in the future. Because it's a balance of three. And if you don't know where He's been and you don't know where He's going, please don't insult my intelligence and tell me you know where you're at today. Because the three have to be together. And, you know, if... if if we don't get to the point where we understand what God has done in history and never see where He's going, it's, it's a tragedy. You know, the book of Esther is actually one of my favorite books in the Bible. I don't know what you know about the Bible or even the books in the Bible, but every one of them is completely unique to the other in what they do. Many times they go together <clears throat> or they cover the same time period, but each one of them is unique in itself. Now, you take the book of Esther. You realize that the book of Esther is only one of two books in the Bible where God, the Lord, is never mentioned? Never mentioned. You know there's only two books in the Bible that are written to women? Did you know that? One of them is Ruth, and the other one is the book of Esther. Only two. Out of 66 books in the Bible, only two that are written to women. One of them to Ruth, and one of them to Esther. And I don't have time to get into it this morning, but Ruth is a book that we all know is a picture of the body of Christ, the church. So Ruth represents the Gentile church. She's not a Jew. She's a Moabite. She's a Gentile. And she's a picture of you and me getting into Christ. So it's a book that is written to a woman who's a type of the church. Now Esther, on the other hand, is a picture of the nation of Israel. And in the book of Esther, you're going to find that it's the only book in the Bible where God is not, other than, other than Song of Solomon, where God is not mentioned, 
The Lord is not mentioned. There's no reference to Jesus. It's almost like God didn't exist during this book. But when you begin to study the book and begin to look at the book and lay it out, you find that God is behind the scenes in every chapter. And the hand of God is orchestrating the events that aren't apparent as you just look at the book. And the book of Esther is an incredible book. It's a book that is the time that we live in right now, and it fits into this generation. Do you know what happens in Esther? A Gentile queen, Vashti, gets kicked off the throne, and a Jewish queen comes on. And it's a picture of the establishment again and the reestablishing of the nation of Israel and the end of the times of the Gentiles. You know, the world, the world missed two of the greatest days, and so did Christianity, by the way, in the history of the world. The first day that they missed was the day that God's Son was born into this world, the Lord Jesus Christ, around 4 B.C. That was the greatest day in history, and yet only three men showed up. And you know what's amazing about that? Those wise men, they came from Babylon, and they had the, the only way that they knew where he was and when he was going to be born was from the book of Daniel and other places in the Old Testament. My point is this. Nobody should have missed that day because all of the information was already in the Bible. The beginning of God's salvation to man. The second day was the day that God's son, the nation of Israel, Exodus chapter 4, was born into this world, and that will be May the 15th, 1948, the beginning of God's salvation for his people, the nation of Israel. And you know what? Everybody missed it. And the information, just like the first coming of Christ, was all in the Bible right there. And nothing will put God, God's plan, the church age, the Bible, or Christianity, or the nation of Israel in perspective better than an understanding of those two days. One of them deals with the salvation that began to come to the world, and the other one deals with the salvation that came through a nation because the Bible says salvation is of the Jews, of God restoring His people. Now, I gave you a lot of information last week, uh, but now today I want to show you uh, the complete process I want you to completely understand every aspect of Matthew chapter 24 and how it relates to every aspect of our Christian life. And to do that, we're going to have to look at some things today, and I, I, want, you to, I want you to take a walk with me today. I really do. I want to walk you back through time. I want to walk you back, and then I want to walk you forward, hand in hand, and I want to show you why that generation is the greatest generation, and under you for understand where we are at in relationship to it. And I want you to better know how to use the information that you have. Now, in the Bible, you have two very important teachings or doctrines or events that need to be understood. The first phrase is a phrase that's found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, and it's a, it's a phrase called the times of the Gentiles. Now, the times of the Gentiles, and it says in that verse, it says, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles started in 606 B.C., just so you know. It runs up through... <coughs> All history, up through the Dark Ages, up to where we are living at today, and will run continually up to the second coming of Christ. Now, the times of the Gentiles are simply this. It's not a hard concept, but I want you to understand it. It's a time frame when God is done with the nation of Israel temporarily and has turned now the world, which was once given to Israel in the kingdom of heaven, it's now given to the Gentiles to rule the world. Those Gentile nations are found in Daniel chapter 2, if you want to take a little more deeper investigative study of it. The second phrase or term that you need to understand is found in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. 
And this will be the term, the fullness of the Gentiles. And he says in verse 25, that I would not have you, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, that you should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. The fullness of the Gentiles takes place during the times of the Gentiles. Now, to show you, listen to me. The times of the Gentiles is a period of time. The fullness of the Gentiles will be in God's mind when the last Gentile gets saved and it triggers the rapture of the church and the fullness now in God's mind of the Gentiles have come in. There's a lot I could do with that today and a lot I could explain on that, but I'm not interested in weighing you down with that. That's a good Thursday night Bible question, but today I just want you to understand these terms. The times of the Gentiles is a period of time. The fullness of the Gentiles is when the last Gentile gets saved. And God now is, His mind has fulfilled what He has to do with the Gentiles and it triggers the rapture of the church. That's a great motivation for soul winning, isn't it? I'd like to be the last Christian that won the last person to Christ that triggered the rapture. That'd be pretty good. Now, both deal with fundamentally the restoration of the nation of Israel. Over 800 times in the Old Testament, you will find a reference. I gave you last week Ezekiel chapter 36 through chapter 40. Those are great chapters. In fact, uh, that is a great complete layout of the whole thing. Romans chapter 11 is great. Zechariah chapter 14. But over 800 times in the Old Testament are you going to find a reference to God gathering His people and bringing them back into the land, which starts the generation that we talked about last week, the greatest prophecy in the Bible outside the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the book of Romans, we know the book of Romans is uh, the handbook for the church on Christian doctrine. The book of Romans is fundamentally probably the greatest book to the Christian that could ever be. Uh, I know that all the New Testament is important and it all does good, but it all, it all goes back to the book of Romans. That's why you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, and then the first book he gives you once the church age kicks in is the book of Romans. Romans is the doctrinal handbook for you and me as a New Testament Christian. Every chapter he goes through and lays out something that we are to understand as Christians. And in that book, there's two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 11, that deal with what we are to understand as New Testament Christians about the nation of Israel. Chapter 9 shows us how the nation of Israel got in the mess that they got in and lost it all to begin with. And chapter 11 shows you that God is going to restore them. And he tells us that we are not to be ignorant of that as Christians. And yet, I don't know if you know it, there's seven things in the Bible that the Bible says we're not to be ignorant of as God's people. And those are the seven things that all God's people are so ignorant of. It's just the way it works. Now, I want you, as my people, I take a lot of time with you in the Bible. I, uh, I get criticized for it sometimes on Thursday night Bible study on the little guys that then there, they want me to move along a little faster. Uh, I have people that don't like the times that I spend laying things out to the depth that I do. And uh, I, I, you know, my answer to that is get your own church and do it any way you want to do it. You are my people, and I have an obligation to give you every piece of truth I can. Now, the difference between me and most guys that talk about a lot of things is they're boring, and I'm not. <laughs> they're like watching the grass grow down in Joplin, Missouri, or someplace like that. You know, I, I know how to spice it up. I'll tell you some jokes. I'll make fun of things. I'll make fun of myself. Oh, uh, you know, I, I, I realize that if you want to get information to people, you've got to loosen them up. And I learned a long time ago that some truth is a sucker punch. Some things I say hit you right between the eyes, and if I just got up and looked at you and said it, then you'd get offended. But if I make you laugh first and get you off guard with this one, then I come around and nail you with that one, it's okay, see? There's a science to preaching. It's called a good street fight, if you understand how that works. But I always want you to be fully equipped. You're my people. I don't have a lot of time left in life, uh, maybe 10, 20, 15 years. I don't know. It's okay. But the bottom line is I want you to have everything I've got in that time period i got left. 
And so I take my time to give you everything. I know that most of you, some of you don't do anything with it. I get that. I understand. That just comes with the territory too. But I also realize that some of you will. And at the end of my life, if I just got one guy, one gal that, that I reproduced myself in to do everything, but take the book and do with it what I need to be done, I'm good. I'm good. I know there'll probably be more than that, but I'm just making a statement here. But I want you to be fully equipped in understanding what God is doing. Uh, so uh, allow me to put uh, uh, chapter 30 into a, uh, a complete understandable perspective for you. Because chapter 30 is a key chapter. We're going to get into some stuff next week moving on that you need to have an understanding because it's going to go down where the whales live, I promise you. And I want to look at this generation very quickly. It's not going to take us long. I want to look at this generation in five aspects. First of all, I want you to see the past historical for a few moments. Then I want to bring it up to modern-day Israel. I want you to see where this generation really in God's mind began. I'm not so much worried about uh, I'm not so much worried about man or what man thinks. I want you I want to take a walk into God's mind today. And I want to show you when it came to the nation of Israel in this generation, where God's mind, what he saw, what he thought. Then I want to show you the process that it took to get to this generation. Then I want to show you what happened when the generation came into being. And then I want to show the opposition to it once it came into being. And all of it leads to the tribulation period and the second coming of Christ and us going home to be with the Lord. And it's going to be a, going to be a great time. So let's have a word of prayer. And Baba, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the offering? Or on the offering. Yeah, we're going to take up another offering before we do this. Baba, stand up and ask God's blessing on the preaching today. Now, you'll notice I did this a couple of weeks ago with Solomon because we were in Proverbs, Solomon wrote Solomon. So I wanted you, I took some time and laid all the uh, complicated aspects out of Solomon. Why? Because I want you to have that information because we're going through things and he's certainly a key character in the Bible. So now turn over to Matthew chapter 24 and let's just take verse 32 through 39, just a few verses here, and let's look at this generation and then we're going to begin to take it apart and show you how it works. Verse 32. Now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that the summer is nigh. So likewise, when ye shall see all these things, you know it is near even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till these things be fulfilled. Now there's our generation. If you don't have that marked in your Bible, you, in fact, you ought to have this whole passage kind of marked out so you can see it. Uh, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And then another great key. We talked about this last week. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days uh, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And we made that parallel uh, uh, to ourselves and the generation that we're in last week. And knew not until the flood came and took, away, uh, took them all away, uh, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, what you have here in this passage is fundamentally, basically, if you can kind of read around it or read through it, you have God's hand in the 20 and the 21st century. God had been silent for almost 400 years certainly 300, from the time that the King James Bible came out, God had been silent. And now, at this point in time, the hand of God begins to move. And boy, it is important to see not only why and how, but in what way. Now, we know here from uh, verse uh, uh, 20, 32, 33, it's talking about the budding of the fig tree. We know from Matthew chapter 21, verse 19, and Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, that the fig tree will be a picture of the nation of Israel. 
The nation of Israel is likened to many things in the Old Testament, but one of the things she's likened to is a fig tree. And remember in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus came out and saw the fig tree, and it was barren, had no figs, and he cursed that fig tree. That fig tree right there and all through the Bible is a picture of the nation of Israel's spiritual condition. God called them out to bear fruit, but they're barren. So that's what you have. And it's a thing where this budding of the fig tree will, when Israel gets back in the land and becomes a nation. That happened in 1948, May the 15th. And I want you to understand how this thing works. Way back in Genesis, God called out a man named Abraham. It was Abram at that time. But God called him out of the Ur of Chaldees, and he said, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to give you. And the Jews to this day look at Abraham as their father because that's where God began to bring the nation of Israel out and together. And Jacob has Isaac. Isaac has, you know how it right down, right down to the line, and everything is in that line and comes through the nation of Israel. Jacob has the 12 boys, become the 12 tribes, and off we go. And what happened is, as we know, in a very, just to make a, a, a quick uh, exodus here, God brings them down, puts them into the land, and what happens is they disobey God, they go after all the other gods, and finally in 606 B.C., God kicks them out of the land. This begins the times of the Gentiles. And for the next 2,500 years, not only do the Gentiles rule the world, now this is modern-day history, but the nation of Israel has no homeland. They wander everywhere. Now, they go back in the land in 1948. Now, I'm trying to set some background here. Now, we say they're back in the land, but let me explain this to you. They may be back in the land, but they do not have the land grant that Abraham was given. They have just a fingernail hold in Jerusalem. They don't even have all of Jerusalem. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 40 and 48 and look at the land grant as it's laid out back there, you will find that the original land grant given to Abraham started over at Egypt, ran 1,400-1,500 miles to Ur, and then went up 1,400-1,500 miles to Mount Arat or uh, southern Turkey. That's the original land grant. And in the millennium, that land grant is going to be divided up as an inheritance to each tribe of the nation of Israel. But right now, they're hanging on by their fingernails. When the Lord comes back, they're going to build a temple. That temple is going to be built on the Temple Mount. You know who's got the Temple Mount right now? The Muslims do. The famous Dome of the Rock, that's exactly the rock that David purchased the threshing floor back in the Bible in the Old Testament. That's where the temple was built. Right now, the devil's got it. So when I say they're back in the land, I want you to understand they're back in the land, but they don't have the land that God gave them. They're hanging on, and every day you're going to see this. I want you to see this. I want you to walk out of here today and you say, well, I'm not really interested. All right, let's pray again. You can leave. I want you to get it because it's the world that you live in today and you need to understand it. Now, I would call this an understandable history of modern-day Israel if I was to put a title on it. And uh, I, I want you to understand how this all happened. The beginning of the movement of God toward the nation of Israel. We would put our start in modern times somewhere around 1850. And from 1850 to 2020, when we're at today, you know, uh, this is where we, we want to walk through this. This is where in God's mind... Not the history books, but in God's mind is where it began. In 1850, remember now, 1850, 1800s are still in the Philadelphian church age. You want to remember that. Around 1850, the Zionist movement became into being. And the Zionist movement was a waking of Jewish nationalism. It was a call by the people for a Jewish state to be put in place because there was no state in place. 
On August 29, 1897, the first Congress on Zionism was held in Switzerland. A guy by the name of Theodore Herzl, he was a, he's called the father of modern uh, Israel. Uh, he, he, he writes a paper called The Jewish State. And as I said, keep in mind now that while this is beginning and God is beginning that infancy of Israel, this is during the greatest period of time in church history where the church is plugged into the Bible and Israel has the best chance to get what they need. Remember, the Jew had been scattered now from 606 B.C. They're scattered again in 70 A.D. They go back shortly after, 70 years after that first captivity. They're in the land when Christ shows up. But again, they're scattered out of that in 70 A.D. under Titus. And they are scattered all over the world. In Europe alone, in the 1800s and 1900s, there's over 20 million Jews. They're in every nation. There's Russian Jews. There's German Jews, there's Spanish Jews, there's French Jews, they're everywhere. But the world was about to change. God's hand was about to move again. Around 1900, Europe was a stronghold of monarchies. And, you know, I don't want to be boring in all this, uh, but it's, it, this is what you got to get. You had the German monarchy that was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The Russians had their czar. The Ottoman Turks had about 1,100 or so had defeated uh, and taken over from the Byzantine Empire. And now they, it's the Ottoman Empire, and those are the Muslims. France had its empire. The British Empire had had Queen Victoria, and then Edward comes on, and then uh, around 1900 or 19. Ten or whenever King George comes in, and they have their monarchy, and of course Italy has theirs. Now, here's what you got to keep in mind: America is not in these monarchies. America at this time still has only been around for 125 years. She's still fighting the Indians out in the wild, wild west. She is not. She is not considered a world power at this point in time. The world powers of this time, the Gentile nations, are in Europe. And the Bible says in Psalms chapter 75, verse 7, great verse, it says that God sets up the nations, and God pulls the nations down. And these six dynasties all had aligned themselves together to protect each other and to protect their dynasties. But God was about to rock the boat. And the process to get to 1948 is, is quite interesting. Around 1915 or 16, the Archduke of Ferdinand, he was the number one big guy down in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, was assassinated, him and his wife. This brought us into World War I. When World War I broke up, the monarchies had to take sides. They had made alliances that if somebody attacked them, they would fight with them, and it, just the way it was. So you had the Germany going to war with France, England, Russia, uh, Italy, Belgium, and Serbia. That's where the guy was from that killed the guy. And uh, you have Germany, Austro-Hungary, the Ottoman Empire, the Muslims, and Bulgaria make up the, the central powers. And they fight against what is known as the Allies, which is France, England, Russia. A little later on, the United States get into it, but add Italy, Belgium, and little Serbia into that as a little mix, and that's what you got. At the end of World War I, all the empires were broken down. You know what God did? God used World War I to break the stronghold in Europe of these empires because without them being broken and busted, Israel could have never got back to the land. And they're all broken down, all except the England. And America merged out of World War I as a world power. This is also in conjunction with the Industrial Revolution that changed everything in America. I don't have time to get into that. On December 11th, here it comes. On December 11th, 1917, General Allenby took Jerusalem from the Muslims. Now, the greatest nation on the earth who gave us our King James Bible is now control of 
the Middle East, Jerusalem, and kicked the, Tur the Turks, the Arabs, and the Muslims out. England now has sole possession of Jerusalem. What more could you ask for? Everything is now moving in place. A little side note. What really did it was that the RAF, the Royal Air Force, their squadron of, of planes flew over Jerusalem before Alamy ever even attacked. And he had so many planes that it thundering over the head that it scared the Turks to the point where they, they bolted and they ran out of Jerusalem. There wasn't even much of a battle. The airplanes that they saw in the sky scared them to death. Little side note, in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 5, it says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem. Defending also, he will deliver it. Passing over, he will preserve it. And the squadron that flew over was the fourth pursuit squadron of the RAF whose motto was, I will spread my wings and keep my promises. You can't beat God in the Bible in history. It's just everywhere you go. And at the end of World War I, the Jews now have the, they have the land. It's theirs. Now at this point, God is on the move. And on November 2nd, 1917, there's a man in British Parliament whose name is Arthur Lord Belfour. And Arthur Lord Belfour puts forth what's known in history as the Belfour Declaration. And its purpose was to give the land, Jerusalem, back to the Jews because it was their homeland. Now, this is based on what happened during World War I. There was a guy by the name of Chase Weisman. He was a Russian Jew. England is in the war, and this Jew, believe it or not, comes up with a formula of smokeless gunpowder that helped England win the war, and believe it or not, he concocted it out of horse chestnuts. Roasting on an open fire, I guess. I have no idea. Incredible. And, of course, this was the basis where the Belfar guy said, you know what, we need to do something. Oh, here it was. I say, old chop, we need to do something for these fellows that are so good to us. I do say that we just give them the land back. After all, the Bible says it is their land. What do you say? Pip, pip, hip, hip, hooray, and all that stuff? <laughs> and so he puts forth in Parliament the Belfar Declaration that said, give the land back to them. Well, here it comes. To make a long story short, England reneged on the Belfort Declaration. A couple of reasons you need to see is this thing builds. The first one was the Roman Catholic Church. Pope Benedict I, and a little later on, Pope Pius XI in 1921, they were adamantly against the Jews getting back the land because they killed Christ. And of course, we know that the Roman Catholic Church, from all the way back in 400 with the Augustine in the book City of Our God, they knew, you knew that uh, they, they thought Jerusalem was theirs and they had the place over it and took it over. That's why we fought the Crusades. So they're totally against it. But they had lined up with the Muslims and, you know, about uh, 1919 or 20, five Muslim leaders showed up there in England and said, if you give the land back to the Jews, we're against it. There shall never be a Jewish state. And then around 1921, the Grand Moffat of Arabia shows up and he says, you know what, guys, if you give that land back to them, England is an island nation and your oil depends on us, you'll give and never get another drop. So through political pressure, the Muslims in the Roman Catholic Church, England backs down. Along with that, Winston Churchill, who was one adamantly against it, wrote what was called in history the White Papers. There was three of them, and they were against Israel coming back. And then Woodrow Wilson got into the mix, President of the United States then, and he was against it, and they reneged on it. I think it's an interesting side note that Sir John Halsam, who was a member of Parliament, was a born-again Christian. He stood up in British Parliament in front of everybody and read Amos chapter 9 with tears running down his face and told them that England had just made the biggest blunder that they'd ever made in their life because the Bible was clear that that land belonged to the Jews. Well, time goes on up through the 20s and the 30s. The Jews are still in limbo. They're traveling all through Europe. They're living in Europe. They're in Poland. They're in 
They're in Austria. They're in Russia. They're everywhere. Now, what happens in around 1939 to 1945, we all know it is World War II. We talked about this a little bit on Thursday night. I told you how that the 20th century got the greatest uh, last uh, picture of the Antichrist that the world was going to get. I showed you how his party number was 555 and the Antichrist going to be 666. I printed some off back there on my desk, an actual picture of his ID card that has a number on it, 555. You can see it right there. You know, he, he, he is the perfect type of the Antichrist. He's Roman Catholic. That's his religion. He wanted to build a thousand-year Reich, just like Christ is going to have a thousand-year reign in the millennium. His birthplace was Linz, Germany, and he had contacted Albert Speer, who was his um, not only his armor's management, but he was an architect, and they were going to make his birthplace the city of the world, just like Jerusalem will be when Christ comes back. And of course, to do that, he had to wipe out all the Jews. It's incredible. Not only in World War II, and most people don't know this, not only in World War II did the Germans decide for what was called the final solution. Heinrich Himmler, head of the SS, had uh, put forth and with his SS leaders that the destruction uh, of the nation of Israel to wipe out every Jew in Europe, and if they'd have won World War II, they'd have wiped out every Jew in the world. That was their goal. And, of course, they're helped along with that by the Muslims. And his name is Hajjah al-Amin Hussein. And during World War II, he became a member of the SS, and the SS divisions had Muslim divisions. Most people don't even know that. They had the Hanshire Division, the Landsmark, the Estonia. They were actually SS divisions that were manned in, in, by SS Muslim Arabs under this guy. By the way, this guy is the uncle of Saddam Hussein, who raised Saddam Hussein after the war. And this is why Saddam Hussein had a love affair with Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich and hated the Jews. We'll get to that in a little bit. When World War II ends, Germany and Japan are now defeated. The Holocaust, over 8 million Jews, don't God knows how many Slavs, Poles, Russians, but at least 8 million Jews in the concentration camps are, are murdered. And the concentration camps were dotted all over Europe in, uh, you know, in Poland, Auschwitz, most commonly, Sobibor, you know, uh, just terrible places where they, they put them under incredible, incredible uh, things that they did. The, the, the Warsaw Ghetto, you know, and rounding them up and taking them into, you know, these concentration camps and anybody that was young or kids or anybody that was an older person or anybody that didn't have a job went straight to the gas chambers. They shaved their hair off their heads because they were using it for telescopic sights in their rifle scopes and in their periscopes on the U-boats. They took their glasses and they took their clothes and they took their shoes and they took their diamonds. They made sure they extracted the gold teeth out of their mouth and before, you know, uh, after they gassed them. I mean, it was an incredible thing. And yet today, you know, there are actually people out there that deny the Holocaust ever took place. I mean, I run into him all the time. You know, uh, Dwight Eichenhauer, he photographed uh, the death camps to a very great detail. And you can see it a lot of times. You get it on Netflix or YouTube. They're actually on there. And he stated, he stated that the reason why he did it in such graphic detail because he says, you know what, someday somebody's going to say this never happened. And it did happen. Robert H. Jackson was the great prosecutor in the Nuremberg trials, and the Nuremberg trials is where they, they um, prosecuted all the Nazi war criminals, and, you know, many of them got death sentences, many of them went to prison. And he said years later, he said when people were questioning, even before he died, that it ever happened, he says, you know, that's an interesting thing. He says, in all of my examinations of all of the different war criminals, some of them said, I didn't know it was happening. Some of them said, you know, it, I was just doing my job. Some of them said I was under orders. Some of them said I was just a camp guard. Some of them said I'm a hardcore SS man and I was following what they told me to do. He says nobody ever said it didn't happen because it did. 
The Holocaust was what united the world. And in 1947, the United Nations makes and passes Resolution 181, which says the Jews get half of Jerusalem and the Muslims get the other half. Now, this is the greatest point in history. This is the thing that everybody missed, the beginning of this generation. And this is the greatest point in history outside the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody missed it except the devil. And now he uses the nations, the very nations. He uses the nations to stop this generation or try to stop this generation from ever happening. So on May the 15th, 1948, it was a Friday, the nation of Israel declares herself to be a nation, rises the flag of the Star of David, and at 12 midnight on May the 15th, 1948, she declares herself to be the state of Israel. At dawn the next morning, she's attacked by the Arab League. Seven nations that are against Israel and the Jewish state surround her to try to wipe her out. She hadn't declared her statehood more than 12 hours than she's attacked. And it's interesting. If you want to put the Bible to history and see the hand of God, these seven nations that attacked her are the same seven nations that attacked Joshua when he went into the land in the book of Joshua. But you can write that down later. But Israel holds her own. And it's an amazing thing. You don't get this, what I'm about to give you. You got to dig a little deeper for that. You know what helped them defeat them? Swarms of bees attacked the Syrian army. Really? The Egyptians thought and heard noises that they were surrounded, so they bolted and ran during the night. Really? And sickness swept through the Arab army that they hardly could have a man to fight. Really? And they whipped them. At the end, the UN steps in and calls a ceasefire. The first of many. But the unrest and the turmoil carries on. In the next eight years, Israel reported 1,700 violations of the ceasefire to the United Nations, who did nothing. Eight years later, the Jews are attacked again. On October 25, 1956, this company called the Sinai Campaign. Egypt, Syria, Jordan unite to wipe Israel off the map. But Israel defeats them. When they found the Egyptian soldiers, here it comes, when they found the Egyptian soldiers and they were picking up the bodies on multiple soldiers they found in Arabic, Copies of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, which is a book that he wrote, Mein Kampf means my struggle, which he wrote, and he said that the problem with Europe was the Jews. So the connection between the Muslims and the, and the you know, uh, Nazi party is, is quite incredible. Oh, yeah, it just, it just, it, it goes hand in hand. More turmoil. More violations of any treaty or ceasefire, and 11 years later, on May 15, 1967, Egypt on the south, Jordan on the east, Syria on the north, all attacked Jerusalem. President, President Nasser of Egypt got on the radio and declared that they were going to wipe the Jews off the face of the earth. You see, the devil has to stop this generation. I cannot tell you how important to most of God's people, it's oh-ho-hem. It's a history lesson. No, no, you're wrong. It is the future of God's people that is going to bring about God's plan and establish God's kingdom on this earth forever, and the devil wants to try to stop it. This is called the Six-Day War in the history books. It's an amazing thing. The Israeli army is probably the best army in the world. Their, their special forces group, uh, is the Mossad, is probably the, the best special weapons tactical group in the world. There's a movie we're going to watch sometime uh, on, a, on a Sunday night when we get a chance, and 
Uh, we'll play it upstairs. It's, 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 a go, it's a great historical. I mean, it's called the Raid on Entebbe. And Entebbe is in Africa. And if you remember, back in the 60s or the early 70s, a bunch of Arabs hijacked a TWA flight, and, or a, no, it was a French flight, and flew it to Uganda. And, uh, you know, Adi Amin was the terrorist president of, of Uganda. And they were going to, they, they let all the non-Jews go, but they held the Jews and were going to murder all of those Jews. Now, Uganda is in Africa. Israel is, where Israel is in the Middle East. The British, the, the, the Jewish army put together, their special units put together a rescue mission. It's the most incredible thing that has ever been done in military history. And they got every one of those people out, except one who was in the hospital, and they obviously killed her. They couldn't get her, with only one casualty. Now, you know the uh, president guy over there, that uh, uh, not Yahoo, Yahoo, Yahoo? His brother, he was on that raid. His brother was the only man killed in that raid. Incredible stuff, what they did. We're going to watch that movie sometime. It's quite incredible not for movie night, but for a historical perspective that you can learn some things. So it, it, it was in great. What they did was that they've always been a step ahead before they got word that they were going to do it. You know what they do? Their jets took off at dawn and bombed and strafed all the Arab aircraft on the ground everywhere. And without air cover, it was over before it got started. And they whipped them in six days and rested on the seventh. God's hand. Here it was the United Nations and Jimmy Carter made them give the land back. And today Jimmy Carter is down in Georgia someplace teaching a Sunday school class in an American Baptist church. It's what he does now. And yet he's responsible for being part of the whole program to stop this generation. Crazy. You want to remember, and I've given you this before, you want to remember rule number one of history. I mean, it's a basic rule. Rule number one is history is all about God moving to accomplish his plan and the devil moving to stop that plan. That's all history is. You break history down from a Bible standpoint, and you cannot have history without God. If you don't have God in history, all you got is a bunch of Gentiles killing each other and taking over their countries. There's no purpose to it. When you put God in it, Israel in it, God moves down through history to accomplish his plan. The devil moves in opposition to stop it. The whole Bible's that way. And he uses nations and religions to do it. Well, the more violations continued and turmoil continued, and on October 6, 1973, they had the fourth war. And it broke out as Israel was attacked. This is called the Yom Kippur War, which their Day of Atonement. This one caught them completely by surprise. This one is one that they almost lost. Amwar Sadat had come to the place where he, uh, you know, he had, of Egypt, he, was, he was vowed that he was going to wipe the Israel off the map and take Jerusalem back. The Arab League uh, again attacked Israel. Now we had a little added attraction with the PLO and Yasser Arafat, who is a Muslim who married a blonde-haired Roman Catholic wife. That window must have went over good. How, I mean, uh, they're all infidels. How do you get away with you being a high muckety-muck up here and you marry a Roman Catholic woman? I'll tell you why, because in history, and I don't have time to get into today, I want to take you to the wedding of Muhammad and Mary. Israel held her own. It was a national crisis. Every person in Israel was issued a weapon and was going to have to fight. From the kids 14, 15 years old to the people 70, 80. And they whipped them. And she held her own. And they, they pushed it all the way back to the border of Damascus. They took the Suez Canal. They took all of that land. But the UN made them give it back. And from 1973 to 2020, it's been one conflict after another. And all the Middle East and all the nations, the United Nations, are against the nation of Israel. 1948 was the most important year on God's prophetic calendar 
outside the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody on planet Earth, at least 99.999% of them, missed it. And the Middle East right now, with the nation of Israel in the midst, is at the boiling point, just waiting for the right time to explode. And we see all this stuff going on. We see all this stuff happening around us, and most of God's people have no clue, let alone how Proverbs chapter 30 fits into it. And for life on planet Earth, 1948 was the beginning of the end. Enjoy what you have. Party, party to your puke. Smoke it up. Fornicate it up. Enjoy life because it's coming to an end pretty quickly. And it's a thing where uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. You see God's hand coming down through history about 1850 with the Zionist movement. And then you see World War I, and then you see World War II. And how many times I've told you, World War I got the land ready for the Jew, and World War II got the Jew ready for the land. Now, you want the hard, hard rub of this? World War I and World War II, just those two world wars alone. 80 million Gentile casualties. 80 million people killed in World War I and World War II. We're not even counting Vietnam yet. We're not even counting Korea. We're not even counting the Bay of Pigs. We're not counting anything. World War I and World War II, 80 million Gentiles killed. For what purpose? Get the Jew back in the land. You know what America needs? You know what you need today? You need a perspective that the Gentile nations mean absolutely nothing to God. If you're saved here this morning, you do because you're his child. But as far as the nation's concerned, hey, go to Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15, 16, and 17 sometime. Go to Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 28. You know what he says? He says, the Gentile nations are as a drop in the bucket to me. He killed 80 million Gentiles just to get his people back in that land. And I'll tell you, a lot of people will have a tough time with that. I can see him right now. Oh, I just think that's terrible. I don't believe he did that. Well, how could God do a thing like that? You know what? I'll tell you how, because God did it to his son on the cross of Calvary, and you thumbed your nose at it. And if God would do all that to his son, I guarantee you, my friend, you better get your head out of wherever it is. He'll do it to the Gentile nations. We've lost that today. We're a kumbaya Christianity, except now we're just touching elbows instead of holding hands. <laughs> we, we have lost God and where he is at. We are living our lives, I mean, we're 48 to 2020. How many years is that? We, we, are on, we have lost where God is at. We don't see his hand anymore. We don't see the greatest time in history. The greatest time in history outside the first coming of Christ was the day that God gave birth to his people and it signaled the end because he says, this generation shall not pass for all these things, the tribulation. And in 1948, life on planet Earth changed. Nobody saw it. So many things happened after 1948. You realize that there was never a terrorist attack of Muslims before 1948? Oh, they fought among themselves over there in the Middle East, but there was no burning of buildings. There was no terror bombings. There was no 9-11s. Why did it all change after 1948? Because the world changed in 1948. Why did we have all the problems that we have? Because the world changed in 1948. Why did, in 1948, there was no lesbians, there was no, I mean, there was, there was no, uh, no gay, there was, it was all in the closet, and that was never accepted, and somebody would have brought up that it's okay to get married a man and a man and a woman and a woman, they'd have been, they'd been run out of town. Why is it okay now? Because something changed in 1948. As it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. The whole world changed that day. The whole world changed that day. 
Nobody ever again looked at life on planet Earth, or God did, in the same way. And yet God's people, who should have known, you had all the information, you had everything you need. Just go on living their life today like they're going to live forever. Like it doesn't matter. There's no urgency in God's people's lives today. We have ball games, we have this, we have that. Oh, we're going through a tough time with the virus now. I know, and that's what you're worried about. And you're all stocking up on toilet paper. You're all stocking up on a hand sanitizer. You can't buy this, you can't buy that. Everybody's doing this, everybody's doing that. And you know what your real worry ought to be? The judgment seat of Christ. You ought to quit worrying about getting your hands so clean and start worrying about getting your heart cleaned up. That's pretty good. Just thought of that. And in the Gentiles, the complete breakdown of the church today. Completely gone. It started with the Baptist. It all, it all comes together. It started with the Baptist dumping the Bible and going into apostasy. And then out of the ashes of the Baptist rose the neo-evangelical movement that has even less understanding of anything than the Baptists did, and they were nuts. And then mix it all together with the charismatic movement that don't believe anything about nothing. And the whole thing just falls apart. And God's people today fail to see the urgency of the hour. And live their lives like they'll go on forever with no understanding. And I'm telling you, I, I'd say in God's mind, in God's mind now, I know it's still going on, but I'd say in God's mind that probably the times of the Gentiles ended around 1918, certainly by 1948. And though we are technically still in this time, I get it. God's attention has turned to the restoration of His people, Book of Esther. That's why you can't find God today outside this book. That's why there's been no revivals in this country for 40, 50 years. That's why there's no great preachers out there that are tearing it up like Billy Sunday, old Bob Jones Sr., Mordecai Ham. They're all gone. Now it's, now it's a nice big marshmallow Christianity where we all want to get along and everybody is happy and don't rock the boat. Well, God behind the scenes is setting it up for the biggest war you ever saw in your life. And what's left of the church will certainly just be a few left gleanings of some grapes out of a very disease-ridden vineyard. And God will fulfill the times of the Gentiles by the fullness of the Gentiles coming in. And with today, you should have a much better understanding of the time that you live in and the end of the times of the Gentiles. This concept will follow right in line with Proverbs chapter 30 when we get back in it. But before we went any deeper in it, I wanted you to understand. I want you to have the information that you need. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans, I mean, you find a lot of people today who think that God is done with the Jews. You find a lot of people today that think that we, the Gentiles, have taken the place of the Jews. They got all these goofy little things, nothing in the Bible. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 11, verse 29, and again, I'm going to tell you, Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 9 tells you how they got into a mess. Romans chapter 11 shows you how God's going to get them out of the mess. And it says in 11:29, for the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are without repentance. Somebody says, well, that means Israel is going to get right without getting right. That's not what the word repentance means. It simply means that God's word repentance means a change of direction, a change of mind. And what it clearly means is God is not changing his direction or plan to restore the nation of Israel. God will not and has not changed his mind toward his people. God will restore his people to himself. And the book of Proverbs, as we know now, is about a man who gets restored, a wise man, and a man who's a foolish man who doesn't. And that everything from 1850 to today will be the prelude to the rapture, the tribulation, the second coming, 
and then the millennium where God's people finally get the land grant that was promised to them through Abraham. You know, in Song of Solomon chapter 2, you have one of the greatest places in the Bible that shows us Christ coming for the bride of Christ, the rapture of the church. It's one of the greatest places in the Bible. And it's, it's one of those things that's hidden away back there in the book that is really the love book that we are to have for uh, the nation of Israel and for our relationship with Christ. And it goes right hand in hand uh, with Matthew chapter 24 with the putting forth of the leaves. I want you to see this. The rapture of the church is clearly detailed as a New Testament doctrine in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Revelation chapter 14, and 2 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's no question about it. It's also laid out in Revelation chapter 4 and a number of places as we see here in Song of Song. But I want to read this to you. It says, Song of Solomon chapter 2 verse 8, The voice of my beloved, that's the church hearing the voice of his beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Is he your beloved today? Or is he just an acquaintance? Is he really the love of your life? Is he your beloved? Or is he just somebody that you have a casual acquaintance with when you get in a jam? Is he somebody that you've dedicated your life to, or is he just somebody that you'll see him and come to church whenever it gets around in your schedule? Is he your beloved? This is written by somebody who's in love with him. Most of God's people shouldn't even be permitted to read this. You've got to be ashamed of yourself. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a roe or a young heart. A rose, a little deer, a young deer, a heart's a little rabbit. Behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the window, showing himself through the lattice. That's a picture of right now. You know, Christ loves you so much, he can't stand to be away from you. You ever have somebody you love very, very, very much, and they went on a trip someplace, and you didn't get to see him for six months or a year or whatever, and how you long to see them? It's been, it's been almost 2,000 years. Now, I, I don't have time to get into all this this morning, and I certainly won't, but it says he looketh forth through the windows and he showeth himself through the lattice. You know those windows are up in heaven? You know, in the Old Testament, it talks about the windows of heaven being open. You know that lattice is that grid that scientists put on the universe up there that is like a, you know, a, you know longitude and latitude, except in space it's different. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture. He wants to, he wants to see us so desperately. He wants to be with us so desperately that before the rapture of the church, before he actually comes and takes us, he's getting a peek at us through the window, through the lattice, because he loves his bride, and he cannot wait to be with you and me as his bride. Too bad we don't feel the same way about him. Tremendous chapter. My beloved spake and said unto me, Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. There it is. There's the day that I'm looking for right there. You can have the Middle East. You can have it all. That's the day I'm looking for right there when the voice of my beloved says, Rise up, my fair one, and come away. That's what I'm looking for. That'll be the greatest day for me. I know the greatest generation in 1948 for what God's doing with his people, but the greatest day of my life is the day he says, come up hither, pal, and we're out of here. For lo, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of the singing of the birds is come, and, come, and the voice of the turtle, turtle dove is heard in our land. Woe, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear. April showers bring May flowers, and you always have a June bride. That's a great key to when he's coming. Now here it is, verse 13. 
the fig tree. There it is. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with the tender grape give a good smell. Arise, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, in 1948, she put forth green leaves. During 1948 to the rapture of the church, nation of Israel back in the land develops God doing what he's doing, but a time at the rapture of the church, those leaves have now turned into green figs. The Lord's going to come take us out, go through the tribulation. Israel's going to get purged in the tribulation. And in the millennium, when Christ comes back, she finally bears the fruit of the fig tree. But it started with leaves, 1948. Green figs, when you and I are exit this place. But in the millennium, she finally bears that fruit. I'm telling you. We're living on borrowed time. I'm telling you, you are living in a time and a day where you better understand the times that you're in. You better enjoy your sin for a season because it's coming to an end. God is looking at the nations and he's not caring about anything. He doesn't care who won the Super Bowl, the World Series. He gives one flip that the basketball games are all canceled. He doesn't give one flying flip about anything that's going on in this world. He is looking for his people to come back to him. And he's looking, his son, that's God the Father, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, looking for you. So when he makes a touchdown and starts going like this, Jesus up in heaven says, get out of the way, I'm looking at that person right there, that's my, that's my beloved. Well, I just made a touchdown, who cares? We're going to reign for eternity together. I can't wait to see you. Do you see the score I made? I don't care about that. Look at the score she's got. How many people she went to Christ last year? Wow, I'm looking through the lattice. I'm peeking through the window. And I can't wait to say to her, my bride, and she can't wait to hear from her beloved, arise and come away, my God. You know, every fairy tale you ever heard, one way or the other, is all connected to the Bible, though the Bible's not a fairy tale. But every one of them is a story about something that happens bad and goes bad and then goes good. And at the end of those fairy tales, that all goes the same way, and they lived happily ever after. There's a lot of things in life put us down. A lot of things in this old world that'll hurt us. A lot of things in this world that are totally wrong and against everything that God is, and we have to suffer with it just like everybody else does. But I'm going to tell you something. There's coming a day when he's coming back for you and he's coming back for me, if you know him as your personal Savior. And we, too, will live happily ever after. We'll never be separated ever again from each other, from him, from the Word of God, from God's kingdom, and God's people. But you need to understand where you're at. And this information is to help you better figure out where you're at in relationship to Christ's coming and give it everything you've got in these last moments, these last hours, maybe these last minutes. Every head bowed and every eye closed.